there was no more Christoph. There was just nothing left except this non-self that was experiencing this icy light of unbearable intensity uh, and this feeling of you know terror and ecstasy. Both things really combined. Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. My guest this week is Christoph Koch, uh, but before getting into that, I want to talk about a piece of writing that I finished last week and published on my blog. I titled it, um, How to Self-Motivate During Your PhD. So personally, I find self-motivation to be one of the most difficult aspects of doing a PhD, in addition to all the domain-specific skills you need to learn, like experimental methods, you also need the domain general skill of keeping up your productivity even when you don't have a boss looking over your shoulder and telling you what to do. And I think this is extremely difficult. It's also super hard to learn on top of all the other stuff that you're responsible for during your doctorate. I was a bit lucky myself in this sense because before I was at Oxford, I was doing a lab manager position at Harvard, and I was basically thrown into the deep end in terms of self-directedness. I had pretty much no set structure, and I was more or less free to do as I pleased. I really struggled with this at first, actually. Um, When there are no consequences for not doing anything, I find that it's really, really easy to not get anything done. Uh, And so... It was something I was naturally really shitty at because uh, I'm naturally just kind of lazy. And uh, so I, I really had a hard time to developing uh, that skill set. And, and I had to come up with a lot of strategies to deal with that struggle in order to maintain my focus and motivation in the absence of external constraints. So in the piece, I detail all of the strategies that I found to be most useful over those years of really working on it. And uh, so, for example, one thing that I talk about is the difference between systems and goals. So we're all familiar with goals and have a vague sense, probably, of of what ours might be. But systems might be a little bit more foreign to people in terms of how to think about the structure of progress. So uh, whereas a goal measures progress in terms of outcomes, a system measures it in terms of inputs. A system is the set of repeatable steps you're going to take to consistently churn out good work day after day, week after week, and year after year. So, for example, I have a system for this podcast, which is essentially a statement about when I'm going to work on it every week and what exactly I'm going to work on. So I have two main blocks of time that I have carved out to work on the pod. That's Tuesday mornings and Sunday afternoons. And I manage to get in work during both of those periods pretty much every week, though not always consistently as I'd like on Sundays. Uh, And But anyway, during those times, I send emails to invite people to be on the show as well as edit the interviews that I've already done. Uh, I also schedule at most two interview slots throughout any given week uh, at a time, of course, that works for my guests. I try to do at least one per week, but but never more than two. Um, I know that, uh, you know, so the point of this system is that I know that if I do that amount of work on a regular basis for a long time, I will produce a steady stream of content that I know will get better and eventually reach whatever goals I might care to specify in terms of the number of listens or the number of downloads or subscribers for the show. So ultimately, I mean, it's beyond my control exactly when I'm going to hit a certain milestone, like X amount of X number of subscribers, but I can take full responsibility for the work that I'm going to put in to ensure that I'm creating quality material. 
And so uh, anyway, that's the sort of thing that I talk about in this article. And if you'd like to read it, you can find it uh, on my website at codycommerce.com slash post slash self dash motivate. That's codycommerce.com slash post slash self dash motivate. So you can also connect with me through Twitter at Cody Commerce or subscribe to Cognitive Revolution on whatever platform you may be listening through. Uh, you can also connect with me through my newsletter. So this is the most personal form of writing I do every week, and I'm actually really enjoying it right now. It's literally a letter. Uh, I write it every week, and it starts with, Dear Luke, and I proceed to talk about the things that have sort of weighed on me throughout the week, what I've struggled with, and what I've learned. Uh, I write the first draft of it, actually, uh, each time. I write it longhand with a fountain pen. And I'm, I'm, uh, I get really into it, and I really enjoy it. Last week's letter was called On Pace, and I went into my thoughts on whether a creative mind moves fast or slow. I talk about this both personally as well as in the context of the system of science as a whole. Uh, so if you think you might like to receive that sort of letter each Friday, then you can subscribe on my website uh, at codycommerce.com slash newsletter. Okay, so uh, Christoph Koch. I asked him how to say his name um, and how he uh, expects his American colleagues to say his name. And he, he says he, he, he really can't uh, say uh, exactly how Americans should say it. It depends on their, their level of comfortability. But uh, I believe the the appropriate uh, semi-German uh, uh, way to say it is Christoph Koch. Anyway, so I'd describe him as uh, a one-note symphony of passion. The only thing that he really has to offer is just an unrelenting, indissoluble, incandescent fascination with the subjects that he's drawn to and uh, to, to develop a profound expertise on their every aspect. And oh my, what a thing it is to behold. The, the primary objects of his interest are consciousness and the brain, what is the physical basis of existence and our experience of it. Um, and so to that end, Christoph is the director of the Paul Allen Brain Institute in Seattle. So to give you an idea of what that means, uh, the late billionaire Paul Allen was hanging out in his office one day and asked himself, if I could have one neuroscientist in the world run my institute, who would I choose? And Christoph was the obvious answer. So uh, he was mentored by Francis Crick, who was the co-discoverer of the structure of DNA. And I can only imagine what it was like to be in a room with those two in a swirling discussion of the physical basis of consciousness that would have surely convinced you of the truth of determinism because once it got started, there was no stopping it. So in this conversation, we talk about many things, but uh, probably none of them are as eminently worth mentioning as our discussion of Christoph's experience of 5-MeO-DMT, which, if you're not familiar, is a psychedelic compound secreted on the back of a species of toad that inhabits the Colorado River. And uh, as, as I hear it said, uh, it makes psilocybin seem like taking an aspirin. So Christoph's new book is The Feeling of Life Itself. Make sure to check it out. It, it details his sort of a most update, up-to-date theory of consciousness and uh, how the brain produces it. So without further delay, it is my pleasure to introduce to you Christoph Koch. So I understand you're a big rock climber. Uh, how often do you go climbing? 
I used to be a, a passionate rock climber. I stopped about five years ago when I um, when I took on a lot of executive duties here in um, uh, in Seattle. You can't get out on a weekly basis and train. Uh, it's not good because you know it's a high, it's a comparatively high risk activity if you go out there on on walls. Um, and so what I do now, I don't have a car. I bike every day and I roll. I roll, you know, try to roll three or four times crew, you know, because this is Seattle and it's easy to roll. In fact, my institute is in South Lake Union, directly adjacent to uh, uh, Lake South Union, uh, which is perfect for rowing crew. Um, and then South Lake Union uh, is a great area, a beautiful area, and it also has some of the best bike lanes of any urban area in the world, as far as I can tell. Uh, the that's correct. So that's why I managed to be able to give up my car. You can bike everywhere. I live north of um, uh, uh, Seattle on the lake, on Lake Washington, and there's this trail that goes around the entire lake called the Berg-Gilman Trail. Yes, and you can get anywhere from there. You know, you can do your shopping. I go to the opera. I go to work every day, always in my bike. It's a great place to bike. And the weather is uh, actually yeah, much better. That then, then people think it is. I mean, most people, when they think of Seattle, they think of rain. But even if it does rain, uh, and I'm not saying it doesn't rain, but even if it does rain, it's usually, you know, for half an hour or an hour. So you prepare yourself for rain. There's no bad weather. There's bad attitude and bad clothing. <laughs> so, Christoph, I'd actually prefer that you didn't say that on air because this is uh, actually by design from Seattleites. We tell people that... Um, <laughs> It, it does nothing but rain there, and that's strictly yes. to keep Californians, sort of like yourself, out. Um, because when they hear that there's nothing but rain in Seattle, they're like, "Okay, well, then I'm not going to move there." And then, because otherwise, if they didn't, if they didn't think that, they'd all move there. Um, and Very we want to make sure that that doesn't happen. So uh, I might have to edit that portion out. But uh, it does rain a lot. I'm glad that it you does rain a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, there's oh, nothing but rain. It's terrible. Don't don't move there. Uh, but I'm glad you've been enjoying it. It sounds like. Um, okay, so I want to uh, go back uh, to sort of your PhD, which I believe was more uh, towards biophysics, and you did it with Tommy Poggio, though, who uh, you know is still active uh, at MIT. And uh, so I guess my I, I'm I'm interested. Uh, did you when you first started working with Tommy? Were you a proper cognitive scientist when you came to him, or did he sort of flip you from an interest in the, the sort of physics of the outer world to the physics of the inner world? Yeah, he was, at the time I was a physicist, so this is in in Germany, in Tübingen, the small, very old, five hundred fifty years old university uh, town in the southern part of uh, Germany. And there was an ad for looking for somebody who does modeling of neurons, biophysical modeling, cable theory. And um, that's how I, um, I met Tommy. So it, it, today we'd say it was straight computational neuroscience. It was modeling of retinal and uh, cortical pyramidal cells and trying to understand the function and the way that excitation and inhibition, particular particular type of inhibition, GABA-A or so-called shunting inhibition, interacted and gave rise to nonlinearities in in the uh, in the dendritic trees. And so, what's different from today is I to write my own program. Uh, you know, there wasn't anything like neuron, you know, the standard modeling tool around. I had to, you know, um, 
I had to sort of der uh, derive the uh, the underlying algorithms and then implement them uh, in um, in Algol that most people don't even know uh, of today, or then later on 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 so-called Lisp machines. But it was straight up computational neuroscience, one of the first um, the and the first such models. What's interesting, at the time when I graduated with my PhD, so that was two and a half years later, in 1982, Tommy, who at the time had, had gone already to the AI lab at MIT, sent me a telegram, which you may not know, it's another old technology, <laughs> congratulating me uh, upon my PhD, but also saying, well, he was a little bit worried because now that I was married and my, and my wife was uh, with, uh, with child, as he was worried for my professional future because there was already one modeler in the United States, Will Rawl, a famous modeler of dendritic trees. And Tommy wasn't sure that, you know, the entire United States could support two modelers of, of, of neurons. <laughs> wow. Which year was this? That was 1982. Yes. Wow, that's crazy. Uh, and so then when you moved to MIT with Tommy, do you feel like that's... Uh, sort of did you do you feel like you moved out of physics and biophysics proper uh, or do you do you still feel like that's where you uh you know sort of uh, have have spent so a lot of your uh intellectual career no i mean since then i've i've spent significant amount of time thinking about the biophysics of the brain the brain is a physical tissue like any other physical tissue Yes, it also gives rise to behavior and memory and, of course, consciousness. It's the most, you could argue, it's the most complex piece of highly active matter in the, in the known universe, but fundamentally it's a physical thing. And if you study it, particularly the way we study it here at the Institute, you realize it's a physical tissue. So, for instance, we published a few years ago this big paper in Nature where we look at all the genes that are expressed, in, in, particularly in the, brain, in, the, in the human brain, but particularly also in, in cortex. And what you realize, so cortex is, of course, it's a sheet. It's like a, it's a pizza. It's like 14-inch pizza, two to three millimeters thick, so pretty much like a pizza with, with some toppings on. But then you realize, if you look at the genes that are expressed, a lot of the variance can be explained by the distance uh, between two points. So if I sample genes from two separate points on the cortical surface, let's say from visual cortex and some other sensory cortex, then uh, the, the farther those two points are apart on the cortical sheet, the more different the, the genes that are expressed. So if you, if, you, if, you go, if you compare, for example, you know, visual cortex and some other sensory cortex, you see there's a whole bunch of genes that are differentially expressed. But then if you go even farther away, like um, uh, prefrontal cortex and visual cortex, you see even more uh, genes that are differentially expressed. And so you realize this physical nature of, um, of the medium and you know the longer the distance you travel in the, in, in 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 cortical space the more the genes um, differ so that's why i never lost this view of um, of the brain as being many things but one of the things it is foremost it's a physical tissue that has physical properties like like um, but uh so from so, Mike, uh, a question sort of related to working with Tommy on that is that I know Tommy was very closely linked with Mars levels. So do you think that uh, this really low-level, implementational-level biophysics uh, is, 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 tells us something that is, is going to be useful at the sort of computational highest level of analysis? Yes. 
those levels are not isolated. So in the Ma Poggio hierarchy, right, you have this, you have these three levels, you have the sort of the abstract computational level, then you have the implementation, the algorithmic level, and then you have the hardware level. But of course, these levels are all interrelated. I mean, try doing long division using Roman numbers, for instance, as an example, or try doing long divisions, you know, on an abacus versus in a brain versus on a, on a you know, on a modern, um, 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 uh, CPU. So, so it is important to understand something about the low-level properties of the brain to understand the limits and the strengths of of uh, the way human cognition works and its properties. Because the properties, the way we think, is shaped by by the underlying uh, brain. Yeah. Okay. That's actually. Yeah. That's that's an interesting point. Uh, I do want to go back and talk a little bit. So there's a there's a story that you mention in your Consciousness uh, Confessions of Romantic Reductionist book uh, about sort of what you cite as the perhaps the low point in your development, which was that you presented your first poster at a national conference and only two people came to see it. One of them was looking for the bathroom and politely stuck around to ask some questions. So I'm, I'm wondering... Uh, you know, when you uh, you obviously went on to be a, a prolific, famous, very influential scientist. How do you come back from a uh, uh, big, you know, sort of down moment like that? And what what did you do immediately after that? After you recovered, presumably from that nasty hangover uh, that happened afterwards. Well, it was only nasty because I drank too much that evening. It was a short term thing. I did yeah. it. Even at the time, I did it. So that's how you dealt with the emotional uh, side of it. How then did you move forward intellectually in a way that felt like, okay, I have to, I have to get myself together here? Well, I, it wasn't really. I mean, fundamentally, I did what I did, and this is what I tell all my grad students: you want to do what you're doing because you're passionate. Science is difficult, particular science in a highly competitive world. You know, with sixty thousand worldwide neuroscientists, right? It's, it's very competitive. So the only way to really do what you're doing is because you feel this is the only thing you want to do. And then, yeah, there'll be ups and of course there'll be downs. Your paper gets rejected. Nobody, you know, thinks your ideas are worthwhile. And then, you know, you just have to have the, the, and the discipline to say, okay, no matter, I'm, I'm in for, you know, I'm, I'm all in, this is what I'm doing. It's like climbing. You fall and then you pick yourself up and, and try again. Because this is what you want to do. So you have to be passionate about what you want to do. So how do you link that with uh, sort of doing science for really big problems, right? Because clearly that's something that you are drawn to, are these mon monumental, the biggest problems you can find in neuroscience and really just in the, the physical or even metaphysical world, right? So how... Um, uh, what, what do you say to students who, who really want to tackle these big problems? And what do you think of the differences between scientists who are, who are able to do that sort of thing and those who, who aren't? Once again, it, it depends on what you want to do with your life. Right? If you want to understand the deep problems of life, why we exist, the deep problems of existence, why, we exi why is there anything at all? Why are, the way we, why are we the way we are? Where does consciousness come from? Then, then you do it however you can. And one way to do it is to read a lot or to read the literature. The other way is to try to do it the scientist's way, which is trying to understand our brains and therefore our minds and how the two are linked. Uh, 
once again, it, it's, I mean, do you choose to do a scientist because it pays you a you know, steady salary? Of course, you know, we all need a steady salary to live and to have families, etc. But ultimately, why are you doing what you're doing? And if you're really passionate about it, if you're really obsessed about, about these questions and you find, well, this is the only way, this is not only the most natural way, this is the only way to do things. I was, I, I was always in love with, uh, with physics as far as I can remember. I was always interested in figuring out the way the, um, the, the world works. And uh, so for me, it was a very natural progression from doing physics in, 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 in school, in middle school, in high school to physics at university and then turning from, from physics looking at the outside world, you know, astronomy, cosmology, uh, to f the, the physics of the organ that gives rise to our mind, i.e. the physics of the brain. Um, I know that you lived a lot of places throughout your life, including, uh, you know, not only Germany and the U.S., uh, but also Morocco. Um, and so I'm wondering, do you think that sort of um, seeing so many different places uh, and so many different cultures, so many different ways of living, sort of made you more sensitive to the invariance of life, like, uh, you know, physical forces, uh, mental forces that are sort of common throughout all of those? Yeah, that's a good observation. Um, yeah, I think it must have something to do with it. So, you know, I was the son of, uh, my father was a diplomat in uh, working in the State Department, the, the German State Department. So every three years you, you know, you get moved. So, you know, I was born in the U.S. and moved to Holland and had to learn Dutch in kindergarten, then to Germany, then to Canada. So I had to move, learn English. Then we moved to Morocco. So I was put in a French school and had to learn French. So you constantly challenged. Um, and so you think about what's constant, you know, what's constant is your family and of course your own and your own mind. And so maybe that's why you tend to, that maybe that's why I focus on these questions. It's difficult to say. Yeah, definitely. But it is a big part of what formed me as the person I'm today. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to talk about Francis Crick. Uh, I know he's had a, a huge influence on your thinking and your science and all that sort of stuff. So can you say maybe where did you uh, where did you first meet Francis? I actually had two advisors, two PhDs advisors at a very unusual situation. So one was Tommy Poggio and the other one was Valentin Breitenberg. So Breitenberg is a well-known neuroanatomist. He came up with the timing hypothesis uh, in, the, in the cerebellum. And um, he was also at the Max Planck Institute in, uh, in Tübingen in Germany, where I was. And he was, um, his wife was friends with the uh, then wife of Francis Crick, Odile Crick. And so uh, he visited, and that's how I met, um, that's how I met uh, Francis Crick, who then also worked with my advisor, uh, Tommy Poggio. Um, and the first time I met him, I was a, you know, a young grad student, um, 23 years old or something like that. I actually met him under an apple tree. Um, and um, what fascinated me about him, so at the time he was already, of course, a world-famous scientist, had a Nobel Prize and all of that, um, but he was all about really details. He asked me a torrent of questions about my PhD. He was interested in the same topic at the time, particularly in dendritic spines. So then dendritic spines are these little saw. If you think about neurons, like, let's say, like a rose stem, you have a you have a pyramidal cell, and just like a stem on a rose, you have the sort of the central trunk of the dendrite, the apical dendrite, and then you have branches coming off, and then you have these little thorns, 
They're called dendritic spines, and they're really interesting. They're tiny. They're micron or two elongated. They're really interesting because a vast bulk of excitatory synaptic traffic ends on them. And a small fraction of them, 10 or 20%, also carry inhibitory synapses. And so it really looks like this particular computational unit or subunit on a neuron. And we were, Tommy and I were interested in their functions, and Francis Crick was in, independently interested in their function. He later proposed his famous twitching spine hypothesis. And so he, all, he wanted to know, he asked me all these questions, well, how big are they, and, and what's the resistance, and what's the capacitance, and I, given the small volume, what do you think is the, is the, is, um, is the concentration of calcium ions at rest in, in, inside a, a spine? So, and he wanted to know precise numbers. Now, he wasn't just sort of speculating about airy-fairy, you know, consciousness and the heart problem, but really very specific, give me numbers, give me details, does this make sense? Is the voltage drop you get as, uh, across the spine head, how does that compare to, this, to the voltage drop at the base of the spine all the way to the soma? So it, it, it was really fascinating. And so that's the way we started interacting at this very technical uh, level. Um, yeah, and so you do, you do tell a story about when he first invited you to the Salk Institute. Uh, you had recently published a paper, I believe with Shimon Ullman, and uh, he basically, for five days, nonstop, uh, asked you about the details of that in the manner that you're describing. So what do you, yeah, so what do you think he gets out of an exercise like that? What do you think it is about being that detail-oriented, as well as appreciating the high-level picture that separates his mind from, uh, you know, that, that makes him a truly great, uh, you know, scientist? You need the big picture you know, to understand. So in this case, he was interested in attention and ultimately how attention relates to, to consciousness. And um, that's fine to have the big, I mean, you have to have the big picture in mind. This is what you're trying to explain. But then science is all about the details, right? Science, I mean, particular biology is all about incredible molecular details, right? All this molecular machinery and the lock and key and which molecules is precisely matched to which receptor and, and how do they interact. And so you need to both keep the, the, the overall goal of your investigation in, in, uh, in mind at all times. This is what you're aiming for. This is what you seek to explain. But then to go down to the levels of you know, the physics and the molecular mechanisms of it. And he, better than any, anyone else, always tried to link this... Uh, this, the, the high level with, 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 if you want, the computational functional level with the very detailed um, uh, hardware level because they're intimately linked in a way that they're not linked. In fact, in, in our devices, in our electronic devices, we work very hard to make them independent, right? So th that means you can program no matter what on your computer independent of the hardware because that's the way we build it. We build the hardware so that software is independent of the hardware. Brains, of course, weren't built. They, they evolved by natural selection. And so therefore, there is not this luxury that you can do one thing, that you can do a high-level operation independent of the low-level physical or molecular details. And he knew that, and he was always, always, until the, his last hours, literally, in his life, uh, hyper-aware of, um, of the low-level details that matter. And so when did you two start to collaborate in earnest? Um, so I, mo so, um, uh, I moved in 1982 to, to MIT, 
And then I published this paper with uh, with Shimon Ullman on attention. In fact, it's by far my best cited papers, um, more than 10,000 citations to it. Um, and then when I moved to it, and, and Francis then invited um, us out for, for one of these very intense five-day sessions in La Jolla, where, where he'd moved to after he retired from England, just, um, just north of San Diego. And then when I became a freshly baked uh, assistant professor at, um, at Caltech in Pasadena, we started meeting on a regular basis, maybe once a month, and then sort of the cadence of our meetings sped up. We met, you know, every couple of weeks. Either he came up to Caltech, or more often than not, I would drive down the two hours to La Jolla, to the Salk Institute, and then later on to, you know, staying at his home, where we started interacting um, in a more intense way, thinking about um, now, you know, the big problem, um, consciousness, and how that would relate to the uh, to the underlying brain. So, uh, how do you think that your and Francis' minds complemented one another? Yeah, I mean, he was uh, he was much older. He was forty years older. Um, but what was remarkable about him, although he was one of the best known, certainly sort of the best known biologist of the of the twentieth century. Um, he wasn't, he wasn't at all, um, he was completely approachable. He talked to, I mean, it's remarkable if you observed him at the, at the tea, so uh, routinely at the Salk Institute, at four o'clock there would be tea and he would join um, the lab of, uh, of Terry Sanofsky uh, for tea hour. And there you, would t you could observe him. He would talk with anybody, with undergraduates, grad students, staff, whoever had an interesting story to tell. He did not book fools gladly. He always, he, uh, he, but he wanted to be challenged. And if people had some interesting factoid or an interesting story or an interesting question, he was, uh, he was totally game to discussing those at, at length. And so that's what we did. We fell into this very easy relationship where I was sort of, um, you know, the, ment the, the mentee and he was the, the, the mentor, but I didn't. I didn't mind challenging him. I didn't mind saying, no, no, Francis, I think this can't be, I think this idea of yours just isn't going to work because of A, B, and C. He didn't mind that at all. Um, and so we got along exceedingly well. I think we sort of, uh, after a while, we fell into sort of almost this uh, father-son intellectually um, and relationship because we had this sort of this 40-year um, age differences. And yeah, so we worked very closely together for um, almost uh, 16 years. We published like 20 papers and book chapters, um, working together. I mean, towards the last couple of years, we almost had uh, daily phone calls. Yeah, it was an intense relationship. And uh, when he passed away uh, in uh, 2004, it was really hard for me because my, my, my father, my my real father died a couple of years earlier, and then when Francis Crick died, it was really, uh, it was really a big hit uh, to my psyche at the time. Um, and so, I mean, so what do you think? Uh, looking at your work now, what do you think Francis would be most excited about? Or what would you most like to talk to about about what you're currently working on? Well, I mean, he liked. Uh, he liked some of the things we. He would have loved some of the things we're doing now. Uh, he had written a famous article in Scientific American in 1979 where he had said, well, wouldn't it be nice to have, for example, ways to turn the electrical activity of neurons 
i.e. the action potential into light, into flash of light. Well, that's happened now. We have this wonderful technology on. He also speculated, wouldn't it be ni nice using sort of light to turn neurons on and off? Well, we have that now in the shape of optogenetics. And so we have this, these very powerful tools to try to observe the nervous system, particularly um, to know which neurons we are observing, which genetically specifies neurons we are observing at the moment, and then to be able to turn them on or off. But he also would have appreciated that the complexity of the brain is vastly bigger than he thought of. So I remember having lots of discussions with him about cell types. So, you know, we know since the early 19th century that all biological organisms consisted of one or more cells, and cells beget other cells. And we know roughly since the, you know, the mid middle of the 19th century, there are all these different neurons from these stains of people like Golgi and Cajal, you know, their pyramidal cells and Bobinia cells and spiny stellate cells and, and Martinotti cells and Chenlier cells. There's all this different variety in the way they look. But now we also have molecular tools that he would have liked it and that he saw the beginning, the rise of these molecular tools. We can, we can identify different cell types. What he didn't appreciate at the time, what nobody really appreciated, that Although what he then estimated, he had a, an unpublished manuscript where he estimated, uh, where he tried to answer the question, well, how many different types of cells might there be in the brain? And he came up with a number between 1,000 and 10,000. This was probably like 20 years ago, which is exactly right, because now we have these large-scale atlases. This is part of the things that we do at the, at, at the Allen Institute for Brain Science, where we can see their their per cortical region, there are probably 100 different cells, different cell types, roughly 50 excitatory cell types, 50 inhibitory cell types. They differ <laughs> in the genes they express, in where they project, where they send their information to, what information they receive, how they process it. And Francis estimated, well, there could be on the order of 1,000 to 10,000 different types of cells. And so, unlike, for instance, our compute machinery, our cell phones, our laptops, where you have just a handful of different types of transistors. Very, very different architectures. And the vast complexity of these, if you have a thousand cell types, they can interact in a thousand by thousand different ways because cell type 25 can be connected only to cell type 972, right? So that gives rise to a million possible connections. I mean, a vast complexity. And, and our tools to intervene in this brain, they are powerful, but also faced by this daunting complexity. Um, and so that's something that we've only realized over the last decade or two. And it reminds me a little bit the history of astronomy. So if you look at the last 500 years in astronomy, each generation of astronomers realized, because they, that instruments were becoming more and more powerful, that the universe is still bigger than the previous generation of, of astronomers thought. Right? First we thought, well, everything turns around the Earth, and then we realized, no, we are actually, everything turns around the Sun. Then we realized, well, those stars out there are really just um, other suns. And then we realized, well, there's a lot of stars out there. They make up a galaxy. And then we realized, well, there are actually many, many galaxies. Now we realize there are trillions of galaxies around. And now people talk about the multiverses, right? There might be a sheer infinite number of possible um, universes. Same thing with the brain. Each time, each 
sort of every decade or two when we get more powerful tools and apply them to the brain, we realize the brain is even still vastly more complex than we previously thought. So this complexity, Francis had some understanding of it, but this full complexity, we're only beginning to realizing it now. Okay, so I want to ask you about your um, current uh, sort of positions on consciousness, particularly integrated information theory, which you've been a proponent of for a while now. Uh, you just released a new book. Um, so maybe, uh, can you say, what, what have you updated about your understanding of that theory, perhaps since uh, your, your previous book in, in 2012, um, that's given you the sort of biggest bang for your buck? Okay, well, so let's start with, uh, with um, let's have a, um, to link up with the previous part of our, uh, of our uh, uh, talk here, Francis Crick. So Francis Crick and I, we published this paper in 89 and 1990 saying, well, 40 hertz gamma oscillation may be a hallmark of consciousness. What did we mean by that? Well, so at the time there was this discovery, which really turned out to be a rediscovery of this interesting phenomenon that in awake cats and, and, and monkeys, you can see on a certain condition in cortex, you can see neurons firing quite regularly every 20, 25, 30 milliseconds. That's um, uh, giving rise to waves of activity that if you look in the, in the, in the local field potential on the EG, you can, you can call sort of gamma oscillations. These are oscillations in the you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 hertz range. Furthermore, not only are neurons firing quite regularly, you know, every 25 milliseconds or so, but when they fire, some neurons tend to fire together, synchronized. Right? So, and we said, well, maybe this, what, what neurons are doing here, they're solving the so-called correspondence problem, the binding problem, where, um, whereby if I'm conscious, I'm conscious, or let's say, of your, of your voice and your face simultaneously, and the way this is, this is done in the brain is that the neurons that mediate my sense of seeing your face and the neurons that mediate my sense of hearing your voice, they fire together. They all fire not only, you know, at this, 25, at this, um, at this gamma oscillation, but also the individual neurons firing together, and that is a hallmark of, of consciousness. This gives rise to a huge explosion in papers, you know, that studying and thinking about consciousness. So that's a hypothesis. That's not a theory. That's an interesting hypothesis. Francis and I knew it was a working hypothesis. We never uh, assumed that this was a theory of consciousness. It's, it's essentially an educated guess. It's a guess, well, we have this interesting phenomena. It primarily seems to occur in, in awake animals and including in awake people, although then Later on, people discovered, well, you can actually also see these oscillations under anesthesia, so that makes the links to consciousness a little bit more, more tricky. In the meantime, we realized, well, these gamma oscillations, they may actually be more closely related to attention, particularly to selective attention, and attention is related to consciousness, but it's really something different from, uh, um, from consciousness. So currently, I think this, this hypothesis of Francis and I is sort of... Um, is, is, I would say, less likely to be true about consciousness, more likely to be true uh, in linking, uh, linking gamma oscillations to, to attention. But we, all, uh, we always realized that what we needed ultimately was a theory of consciousness, not just a, a gut hypothesis, well, consciousness may be related to gamma. Well, it may or may not be related to gamma, but that's not an, 
you know, that's not a theory of consciousness. It can't be true that anything, anytime there's a gamma oscillation somewhere in nature, that's, that's what consciousness is. Why should it be gamma? Why not delta? Well, why not beta? Why not alpha? What is it about oscillations? Right? So you need a fundamental theory. And then early on, there was uh, Giulio Tononi, who at the time was working with uh, Jerry Edelman, who was another Nobel, um, Nobel laureate, also working in La Jolla. Uh, he, he got his Nobel Prize in Immunology. And they were starting to think about this thing called integrated information, that ultimately consciousness is about um, integrating information into a, into a percept. It's highly diverse because if you think about all the various states that I can be conscious of, it's, it's a dizzying, sheer uncountable number of states. Each one is the way it is. But it's also one. It's also integrated. It's holistic. My my experience is one. It isn't. It's it's um, it's not. There aren't two separate experiences. Whatever I hear or feel or experience is one experience. So it has to be both differentiated and integrated. And out of these sort of thoughts arose this what's called integrated information theory by um, by Giulio Tononi, which is more sort of a, of a fundamental theory of consciousness. It starts with. What is consciousness? What are the hallmarks of any conscious experience, no matter how banal, no matter how sublime? Could be a mystical experience. You know, it could be a near-death experience. It could be just an experience of uh, you know having a slice of, uh, of pizza. What are the what are the sort of the key aspects of any experience? Then let's think about. Um, what, what physical mechanisms, what properties does a physical mechanism like a brain or computer chip or anything else physical have to obey in order to instantiate these, these, uh, these properties? And that ultimately gives rise to a calculus uh, that tells me, given a particular system, a particular mechanism that I see, like a brain or like a computer, I can analyze it to... to, to um, predict if I know the mechanism, does it have this thing called integrated information? It's a, it's a number, it's a pure number, it's not measured in bits. It's a number that's either zero or positive. And this, this number, this integrated information that's sometimes abbreviated by the Greek letter phi, <clears throat> tells me to what extent the system is irreducible. Uh, this integrated information really tells me, does the system exist for itself? Or is it, is it reducible to components? If it's reducible to a component, it doesn't exist as a system. It's integrated information is zero. It's phi is zero. It is not conscious. To the extent that the system exists for itself, its integrated information is positive, is some number, 42 or billion. Uh, and the larger the number, the more the system is irreducible, the more the system exists for itself the more it is conscious. So the theory says ultimately consciousness is, 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 uh, is a causal power. The system is fundamental in the, sense, in, in the sense that it says anything that exists only exists by dint of having causal powers, either upon others, like gravity. We know things exist because they exert gravitational pull on me, or we know things exist because they have, let's say, a charge, electrical charge. So ultimately, we know things exist by their causal power they exert onto others. Any system that has causal powers upon itself, in other words, where it's past, it's immediate past, 
gives rise, causes its current state, and the current state causes its immediately next state, its, its, um, its future state, any such system will have conscious expense because ultimately that's what consciousness is. It's intrinsic power upon itself. And the more intrinsic power you have upon yourself, the more complex you are, the more you exist, the more you're conscious. That's ultimately what, what, what this theory says. It makes a whole range of predictions. Some are very sensible. Some are rather strange and very counterintuitive. Among others, it predicts how to build a conscious meter, uh, how to build a device that can measure consciousness in people, for instance, uh, you know, to say whether this anesthetized patient is conscious or not, to estimate whether this patient who is neurologically incapacitated because they were in a heavy car accident or intoxicated feels like something or is truly unconscious. So it gives rise to all sorts of empirical measurable consequences that people are now trying to, um, to, uh, to ascertain and to measure to, to see to what extent. So one, one thing uh, that I'm pretty interested in, something that you've talked about in a number of different places, is the adaptive function of consciousness. Uh, you know, so what it, wh why would evolution select for the existence of subjective experience uh, instead of just creating automata? Um, and I find your, uh, you know, sort of more current treatment of it, uh, at least in comparison to your 2012 treatment, uh, pretty, pretty convincing. Um, and it makes me think of this uh, recent paper by Fiery Cushman, uh, which is called Rationalization is Rational. And he's saying that the reason we rationalize, which is look back on our previous experience and say, oh, well, here's why we did that, even when that story is not necessarily true, it's essentially about consolidating information between uh, disparate cognitive systems, right? And so you have uh, a lot of different things going on there. There's, you know, there's um, memory, sensation, uh, habitual, uh, goal-oriented, you know, these different systems working. And rationalization sort of brings them together. And this is kind of strikes me as close as what you're saying to the function of consciousness is, right? Essentially gives us one screen on which to view the information that may or may not otherwise be connected, right? As you, as you write, integrating information is fundamentally adaptive. Correct. So, so the answer to your question is that natural selection, of course, does not select consciousness because selection only operates at the level of, of, of behavior, right? But those creatures that are more integrated, that have more integrated information, are more adaptive and therefore tend to survive more. So therefore, selection automatically selects creatures that will have high fi um, But isn't there maybe a sense in which is it maybe a slightly different way in which we normally think about adaptation, right? Is that the nature of the kinds of machines that um, evolution can create, they're not, the, like you said, the, our computers, they have a very small number of kinds of transistors, whereas the brain has a very large number of kinds of neurons. So the bio, bio, biology and evolution tend to create machines that are very complicated, whereas intelligent designers tend to create very streamlined, uh, uh, you know, sort of machines. So... Um, there's perhaps a sense in which because integrating information requires that you have lots of different modules coming together uh, and, and sort of, uh, you know, sort of coalescing into one place, uh, that's actually the only way that a biology could conceivably construct an information processing system is, is with uh, consciousness built in. That's correct. 
in a narrow sense, it doesn't get selected, just like, you know, we didn't get selected to be ballet dancer or symphony composers or mathematicians, but here we are. Humans are capable of all of that. Yes, so bio biology selects automatically uh, sort of mechanisms that have high integrated information. Yes, if we build them, we may not... So who do you, yeah? who do you think is currently most wrong about consciousness? I'm sure the list is long, but who who do you think is just the most completely obtuse, boneheaded, you know, like just the theory is completely off? What do you, who who would you float for that? The people I find most wrong, and in, in fact, I'm just astonished by them, are what I call the deniers, the eliminative people. Uh, I mean, these are philosophers, for instance, the husband and wife team of um, Paul and Patricia Churchland or um, Daniel Dennett, that essentially that either seek to simply eliminate or deny consciousness. I mean, the various shades, like with, with, with any philosophers, that either deny that it exists or they accept that people clearly talk about being conscious, but all they really mean are uh, that they have certain beliefs about certain behavioral dispositions. So I believe that I'm in pain, I will moan, I will, you know, wrap my... My, in my jaws, it's toothache, I will stop eating on that side of my mouth, etc., etc. But once I have explained all my, all these behavioral dispositions, then there isn't really anything else to explain. There isn't anything special about consciousness. And, and so, for instance, uh, Dan Dennett is cited in a well-known interview in the New York Times where he says, you know, that elusive subjective conscious experience, the redness of rare, the painfulness of pain that philosophers call qualia, sheer illusion. That doesn't really exist. And it's, it's, uh, there's a significant fraction of um, analytical uh, philosophers that fill the Anglo-American, uh, you know, um, philosophy departments have this sort of belief that there isn't anything special to explain about consciousness, either it doesn't exist or certainly it doesn't require anything above and beyond uh, sort of conventional um, behaviorism dressed up in, a, in modern clothes. This I just find absolutely astonishing since consciousness is the most central aspect of reality, the only aspect of reality I have direct access to. It, it, uh, it's clearly different from the underlying physical substrate. I mean, my brain is clearly different from, you know, any one conscious experience I have, although I know my brain is closely related to, to, uh, to my conscious experience, but they're very different things. And so how does consciousness come into the world? I have to explain that. And just denying it because I'm unable to explain it, it's just I find an astonishing rationalization. Right. As they uh, called Dan Dennett's book, uh, Consciousness Explained, uh, explain, Consciousness Explained Away. Correct. Yes. I think he simply explains it away because he's unable to fit it into sort of his conventional physicalist framework. Well, I think if you just, if you just have a sort of a little bit larger view of, uh, of what physicalism entails, then I think you can perfectly well explain it. But just by denying it, I just, I just find this absolutely an astonishing. I've had this correspondence with him going back now three decades, you know, if, if, if you ever had a tooth infection, I remember I had this tooth infection while I was climbing in the, in the Sierra, so you're away from, you know, you don't have pain medication, and, you know, this tooth, this pain at this moment is the most, is the single 
you know, the, your entire world can be filled up by, by this God-awfulness of pain. And it's different from my behavior. Yes, I get it. When I'm painful, I do certain things. But, but by and large, I, I just, I'm just in my sleeping bag, curled up in, in a ball, right? Because I have this God-awful thing. And just to say, well, sorry, you're really confused about it. You aren't really in pain. You just think you're in pain. You have a mistaken belief that you have. <laughs> well, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't make a least bit difference to the God-awfulness of my pain. But isn't another way of, of framing Dennett's position uh, that if you collected all of the facts about sort of the process of perception, then you would also have collected all of the facts about the conscious experience of that perception. Um, but you wouldn't actually need any additional uh, sort of mechanisms to explain consciousness itself above the perception and, and registration of those different signals like pain, the visual experience of red, etc. Well, it depends exactly now what you mean by registration of those signals. That, that god-awful pe- uh, feeling, that is what consciousness is. Yes, and if you, I think it's an objective fact about the universe. And in fact, I think it's the most objective fact of the universe that I have access to. That is neat. That needs to be explained. But that is different from the neurons in my head responding to pain, and it is different from any behavior that I might have while I, uh, you know, while I experience this um, this pain. Um, in fact, you can see this most explicitly. I had this uh, most explicit in if you have an exper- a so-called pure experience under certain types of meditation states or when you're in a flotation tank or when you're taking certain types of drugs like 5-MeO-DMT, when you don't experience anything else, your entire body is gone, your vision of the world is gone, sounds are gone, smells are gone, yet you're still conscious. You're not doing anything. You're not predicting. You're not remembering. You're not planning. You're not intending. You are this pure subject, this pure thing, this pure state of being, having an experience which might have no content, but you are highly conscious without doing anything. There isn't anything else that you're that you're doing, that you're planning, that you're processing. How do you explain that? That's that's one that's one uh, of a parcel very large number of, of distinct experiences and we have to explain it and fit it into our picture of the universe yeah so uh sort of along those lines you gave me a, a really good sort of overview of uh integrated information theory and um you know sort of comparing your perspective with dennett's like you said you've been having this correspondence for you know three decades now um uh, what what do you think has changed about the the debate and maybe new information that you have added to your um, theories or your thinking recently? Are there are there any big updates you've made recently about thinking about consciousness specifically with with respect to IIT? Oh yeah, I mean IIT has matured. You know, it um, early on. So the, the the theory itself was of course, of course the intellectual child of um, of Giulio Tononi. So it has uh, gone through several iterations. Now we're talking about IT 3.0. Um, it's, um, it has evolved. It's become more sophisticated. It explains a larger range of, um, of phenomena. And it, it, uh, in fact, it's now being tested in a, in a rather interesting example of a scientific collaboration, a so-called adversarial collaboration with the other great, um, the other part, um, sort of uh, 
popular scientific theory of consciousness, so-called global neuronal workspace. And there's now a set of experiments that have been um, that have been derived that are now being tested, where there are these two theories make conflicting experiments. So this was a um, this is a collaboration where a number of people, including the people the, the the people who originated these theories, Julio Tononi, myself, Stan Hain, you know, who's the sort of the, the the person responsible for for global neuronal workspace, and other people got together and agreed, okay, let's do some experiments, particular two experiments, where IIT and global neuronal workspace have conflicting predictions, and let's test it. And so right now the data is being collected in in five minute subjects using fMRI and EEG and, and MEG and ECOG. Um, these are various um, bulk tissue, um, bulk brain tissue measuring technologies. Uh, and the theories have different predictions and we'll see what the experiments um, tell us, which predictions are most correct about the timing and the location of the neuronal correlates in the, um, in the brain. So this is all great progress. Right? We didn't have such theories, and we didn't have these these experiments where we can directly, uh, you know, pit head to head the two different theories against each other and see which one better describes uh, the experimental outcome. That's going to be extremely cool to see the results of those experiments. Yep. I I have uh, a, a question. Um, which I, I don't think I've, I've heard you talk about directly, but um, it's it's sort of the about the recent surge of interest in psychedelics, and um, you know, so one perhaps one of the side effects of this uh, sort of surge of popular interest in the subject is an increased appreciation for the breadth of possible conscious states. Um, you know, so of course there's uh, there's still the singular fact of qualia and uh, the f- the fact that there is subjective experience at all, which doesn't necessarily change, but uh, you know, it, it sort of illuminates the idea that consciousness is probably in many ways more multifarious than our sort of office-dwelling daily experience of it suggests. So are there, are there any interesting questions that this uh, sort of direction of research and public discussion has opened up for you in any new ways? Yes. For once, the fact, in fact, this connects to the question you just asked me before, that you don't need an ego. You don't need a sense of self in order to be conscious. So what people report in near-death experiences, or for example, um, when people take uh, what's known as uh, colloquially as a God molecule or the toad 5-MeO-DMT, yeah. you can go into a state where you completely lose your sense of self. Everything is gone. Once you, once you go into this rabbit hole, the entire world disappears, your body disappears, any knowledge of you disappears, any ego, any desire, any fear, any expectation, all of it is gone. And what you may experience is either you're highly conscious, but what you may be experienced may either be just emptiness or a pure light, this unbearable icy light that, um, and that people report. No space, no time, no sense that this is too long or the interval is too short. There just isn't any, there just isn't a feeling of a sensation of passage of time at all. And then people... Have, Wait, so have you ever experienced ego disillusion yourself? Have you ever done 5-MeO-DMT? I'm sorry, I'd be surprised if you did that one because that one's rather rare. But I mean, have, have you ever experienced this for yourself? I have experienced complete loss of ego. Where there was no more Christoph, there was just 
nothing left except this non-self that was experiencing this icy light of unbearable intensity. Uh, yeah. And this feeling of, you know, terror and ecstasy, both things really combined. Uh, yeah. And then yeah, you, realize, about, uh... you realize that the awful, you realize sort of awfulness, the etymology of the word awfulness means in awe, in awe of the sublime and this, this feeling of awfulness that we now have this, this, the connotation of negative really combines this feeling of awe of the sublime, but also the terror at it. So, yeah. it, but in, in the, in the one thing I can say for sure, and this is my own experience, this is the experience of many others, your ego is totally gone. You aren't sitting there observing yourself. You aren't thinking about yourself anymore. As I said, you have no more dreams. You have no fear because fear implies, you know, oh, I'm going to get hurt in the future. There isn't a sense of future. There isn't a sense of past. There isn't anything else but this feeling of, 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 of iciness, of, of, yeah, of terror, of, 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 of bliss, of the sublime. But it is already so a that... conscious experience. Just like any other experience, yeah. just like the experience of having a slice of pizza, it still shares the same fundamental subjective quality as it does with any other conscious experience. But did that exert a sort of um, influence on your sort of scientific thinking, this profound experiential, uh, you know, sort of uh, event that you went through? Yeah, because it tells me several things. A, it tells me that you do not need a sense of self to be conscious. So there are so-called theories, higher order thought theories of consciousness. So hot, so-called hot, higher order thought, they argue that conscious really means, oh, I'm conscious of me, Christoph, having a pain. I'm conscious of talking to you. And of course I can be conscious. I, I, I can have this uber ego that says, okay, here I am, Christoph, I'm sitting here at my desk talking to you. I, I can perfectly well do that. Humans, particularly adults, are perfectly capable of, of doing that. But these self-consciousness states, I think, are only a, a, a small subset of a vastly larger space of all possible conscious experiences. And particular literary people tend to overemphasize because they constantly introspect and constantly self-obsess. So we tend to overemphasize these states of self-consciousness. When you are out there, for example, having one of these pure experiences, there isn't any self there. When you're making love, when you're climbing, when you're on the sharp end of the rope, that inner voice, that constant critic is totally gone. Because, you know, you have to fully be conscious. You have to be aware of, of, of all the things outside. When you're running, when you're, you know, um, on, a, on, a, uh, on a motorcycle in dense traffic, again, you're, you're, there's very little consciousness of self. So that's one thing, again, this, this, this experience taught me that there, that there is something to be conscious that doesn't involve any sense of self. The other scientific question, what is it that gives rise to the sense of of, of of ecstasy or the sense of sublime or of terror. Furthermore, what is it? What is my brain? What does my brain look like, for example, in terms of EEG or fMRI, when I am in the state of pure consciousness? Similar to a state, let's say, if you are in an isolation tank and you are floating there, you've lost your sense of body, you don't see anymore, it's completely dark, you don't hear anymore, you don't smell. You let the, you know, all the, all the residue of your thoughts and inner thoughts die down, and then you become this, this non-self thing, but you're still highly conscious. How does your brain respond to that? Is there any brain activity anymore? I mean, let's say in, in, in your cortex, so it gives rise to a whole sort of interesting um, uh, scientific questions. 
Of course, the, the big question many people have, do you access, is this a higher order consciousness? Right? People like talking about higher order consciousness. I mean, for example, near-death experiences, people who have this, and they're very similar to fiber, some of these drug-induced experiences, or do they access a higher realm? I don't know. They're certainly, they're certainly very special in the sense these are very rare experiences. Some people will never have them. And even if you have them, typically you may only have you know, one or two of them in your life. What, what's most fascinating and tantalizing about them is that they leave you, they leave you in their wake with this, this sense of equanimity, the sense of peace of mind, the sense of, you know, even in the face of death, yes, that's somehow okay. That's just the way the universe is. This is, um, you know, what, what the ancient Greeks, what the Stoa called ataraxia, the sense of um, equanimity. And that's really a precious gift that they can give you. Christoph, thank you so much for doing this today. This has really been a uh, a, a huge pleasure for me. Uh, so you you said of your um, PhD advisor Valentino Breitenberg, they sort of had this larger than life personality, living proof that one could be a great scientist, an aesthetic um, musician, bon vivant, and a mensch. And certainly, I feel the the same sort of way around uh, about you. And it's it's been a real pleasure to uh, to talk to you today. Thank you, much, Cody. That was uh, very engaging and enjoyable. So yeah. Uh, I have to be honest, that was a hard interview for me. For one thing, uh, I was quite nervous going in. Uh, I've been such a big fan of Kristoff for such a long time, and it was a huge honor to speak with him. Sometimes with that, it feels like, uh, oh wow, you know, he's doing me such a favor to take the time to do this talk, and I want to be really respectful with what I say and how I say it. And I think that ultimately, that sense doesn't really serve anyone. Of course, you want to be respectful of people's time, but especially for someone like Kristoff, the way that you do that is through engaging fully with their ideas. If you can't give them something to push against, then what's the point of having the conversation? Uh, so one thing that I've seen from people like Kristoff is that their existence is mostly spent trying to convince people of their, their own point of view. It makes me think of what he was saying about Francis Crick, actually. So he uh, would engage with anyone, as Christoph was saying, you know, from an undergraduate to another Nobel laureate. And I think part of the mindset there is that there's no one that it's not worth it to try and bring into your way of seeing things. There is a certain relentlessness about it. And uh, I, I really think that it is a sort of evangelism. And I've seen it in my own experience with scientists like Josh Tenenbaum at MIT. Uh, so you could be totally new to the field, the freshest undergraduate possible. Uh, but if you're interested in the questions, the same questions as Josh about how the mind works, then he'll take the time to engage with you and explain step by step at whatever level it takes why you should see things in the way that he does. And so I don't think this is necessarily the mode of operation all of us should strive for, but it's certainly something to contemplate in terms of that overriding commitment. And uh, it's, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's a joy to experience and to appreciate even from afar in many ways. But uh, sort of on the other side of that, I have some issues with consciousness as a research topic. And so when I first got into cognitive science, uh, it was a topic that I was obsessed with. And my senior year at UCLA, I taught a course on the neuroscience of consciousness. 
Uh, it was actually, if, if I do say so, really rather brilliant because even though I was teaching the course, I had all but one or two of the classes be a guest lecture in which I'd bring people in from different departments to talk about different theories. And I really think that it was a win-win because let's be honest, who wants to hear me lecture for 10 weeks straight? Uh, it's obviously better for the people in my class. Uh, and then also I didn't have to do any of the work uh, because it was all guest lectures. And, uh, you know, to some extent, I guess that's similar to what I'm doing now. At any rate, um, I found that uh, sort of around that time that I was teaching that course, I, I, I sort of lost interest, this, lost interest in consciousness as a topic. Um, and my problem with it was sort of that the things that are initially interesting about consciousness are really the only things that are interesting about it. So you can start thinking about the fact that there is subjective experience at all and be like, whoa, uh, holy shit, that's so crazy. But then when you, you look at the next layers, it's like, okay, how do I dig into that further? And there's not really as much there as there is for other topics. Like if you get into one of the more traditional aspects of cognition, it might be not as quote unquote big, but you can, you can go really deep into understanding how it works. Consciousness, because it's so profound, is almost sort of surface level in what's interesting about it. And I think this sort uh, this is something we sort of saw in the question that I asked Christoph about what he's updated in his theory recently. And the answer, in short, is not much because there's, there's just not a lot of new evidence to work with. In fact, I'd go so far to say is there's not really that much new evidence to work with as Descartes didn't have back in the day when he proposed his own brand of dualism. Uh, and so I think that some of the high-level ideas are still really compelling, like the idea that you could measure how conscious a particular entity is by looking at the uh, sort of integration of information within it. But then it's sort of unclear to me how to go deeper than that. But, uh, you know, ultimately, of course, it's, it's amazing to hear Kristoff talk about the subject. Um, I actually wonder how many, how many times he's used the word consciousness in his life. Uh, I would love to know the exact number. I think it has to be like in the millions, right? Um, I did a little bit of math on this. And so let's say uh, he said like, he's, let's say he said consciousness like 20 times in this conversation. Uh, and I mean, I'm, I think that that's, uh, you know, a conservative number uh and but let's say that he he said as he says it like 50 times a day i think that's also sort of an underestimate but let's just go 50 times a day and then let's say he's been managing approximate number for like 30 years that would be uh right at about uh 547,500 times of saying consciousness so i mean a million is probably close to the right order of magnitude to be talking here maybe a little bit south of that at any rate, uh, thanks for listening this week. I hope you enjoyed my talk with Christoph Koch. Uh, you can connect with me on Twitter at Cody Commerce uh, or on my uh, newsletter, codycommerce.com slash newsletter. And I will see you back here for Cognitive Revolution next week. Mm -hmm.